I had written half a script, maybe a third of a script yesterday. Then cue an entirely sleepless night and a return to a historical period that I had to obsessively research for a project of my own volition, feudal Japanese warriors. We all know them as samurai, skilled warriors bound to the honor code of Bushido, and some of the most effective and revered fighters in history. More likely than not, you've met one dude bro historian who took a five-minute break from chugging Red Bull and watching World War II and Roman Empire documentaries on my Enemy of the History channel to mention the samurai. I don't know where my disdain comes off harsher here, my rivalry with the history.com or my fellow self-taught historian peers. That's pancake to flip on another day because we are weaving in and out of Japanese society through the ages, exploring the roles women played. We may be touching on some storytellers like myself, but I want to set up a world in which warrior empresses, female spies, and samurai aren't just a footnote in the chapter of our textbooks have on Japan. You know, the one where Western imperialism forcibly drags the nation out of isolationism. But I am getting ahead of myself. If you have green tea or sake nearby, pour some out for me because we are going all in. Women's rights and roles in Japan have a very conflicting nature depending on which historical period you're looking at. The high-end period lasted from 794 to 1185 CE and was named for the imperial capital at the time. Despite inefficient governance and a struggling economy, this is regarded as the golden age for its contributions from its wealthy and educated aristocrats and its heavy influences from the Chinese. Noble women in high in Japan could own their own manners and generate and control impressive levels of wealth. And it was noble women, especially those of the emperor's court, that contributed to the development of Japanese literature. Appreciation for the arts, as well as sensitivity and gentility of spirit, were highly valued by Japanese elites as part of Buddhist ideology adopted by the court, which was encouraged for seeking out beauty due to its fleeting nature. The high-end period was dominated by women, preserving their immense contributions beyond what most feudal societies worldwide would have recorded. Most notably is Murasaki Sikibu, a feudal noblewoman and lady-in-waiting who wrote The Tales of Genji, the world's very first novel, and Sai Shonagon, the court lady to Empress Consort Taishi, who wrote The Pillow Book. Funny story about that book, it was actually a journal. Full of observations, poetry, and her own musing, she never meant to share it with the world. When some guests visiting noticed it, they stole the book from off her pillow. Despite her pleas, these guests just carried it off, and the book has become a huge success and a staple in Japanese historical literature. The name The Pillow Book makes a lot more sense now. Along with owning property, women were protected by law from physical abuse, especially from their husbands, and all upper-class women received education in poetry, music, calligraphy, and literature. And some noble women learned combat, but we'll get to that. Don't worry, I haven't forgotten my promise of sword-fighting badasses. It's important, though, to keep in mind that these noble women still lived within a very strict patriarchy. They had limits to their education, high beauty standards, spent most of their lives inside, and were unable to have contact with men, and still very few legal protections. After the high-end period, we transitioned from classical Japan to feudal Japan. 
During this time, the noble military class of samurai has been elevated in power with the ascension of the shogunate. Basically, the shogun was the military and political leader, while the emperor's role transitioned to a cultural and spiritual role. Feudal Japan saw a lot of bloodshed, with warlords conquering neighbors, forming alliances, and rebelling left and right. This is an incredibly oversimplified explanation, but the basic information all just is here to tell you that you basically, if you were a warlord, wanted warriors to protect your territory, so samurai were in high demand. When you think of samurai, you're probably thinking of the Edo period under the Tokugawa shogunate, when Japan entered isolationism and was focused on infrastructure and culture development. You're definitely thinking of the infamous sword, the katana, the plated armor, and maybe Tom Cruise, but you probably don't think about female warriors. Ona Ugeisha, translated to warrior woman, were female samurai training in martial arts and sword fighting alongside more artistic education, depending on their ranks. It was the role of the Ona Ugeisha to fight alongside male samurai, defending their homes and honor. The main weapon was the naganata, a pole with a curved blade tip that was especially designed for the onobugesha. Given that most women of the time were smaller than male samurai, this weapon was specifically designed for them as a symbol to offer them more balance. Eventually, the naganata became more of a symbol and of status as wars became less common and were often included as part of dowries. In fact, all samurai sent their daughters to their husband's new house on their wedding night with a naganata. Onabugesha also carried small daggers exclusive to the warrior class. Japan has a long tradition of warrior women, one of the first being Empress Jingu, around 200 CE. When her husband, Emperor Chuai, died, Jingu assumed the throne and at age 30 led the invasion of Korea, then the kingdom of Sia. I'm going to be so honest here right now, guys. Nothing good has ever come of Korea being invaded by Japan. From puppet governments to World War II comfort women, not good, not remotely good. Jingu defied all cultural expectations, though. She was talented and a terrifying adversary. During the invasion, she bound her body and rode into battle wearing men's armor while pregnant. Jingu's invasion supposedly ended with no casualties, which... I don't, amazing, I guess, if that's true. She went on to rule Japan for another 70 years, living from 169 to 269. She literally died at 100 years old, and it became the first woman featured on the banknote in 1881. However, the most famous samurai is Tomo Gozen. Tomo wasn't her real name. Gozen means lady, and Tomo may have referred to a symbol she wore printed on her armor. In any event, Tomo was one of the most skilled warriors in Japan's history. She trained in archery, horseback, and fighting with the katana, which was usually reserved for male samurai. The 14th century tale of Haiki makes mention of her, saying she was a warrior worth a thousand, ready to confront a demon or a god, mounted or on foot. And if that doesn't sum it up, I don't know what will. Most Onabugesha's roles were limited to defending their villages and their homes should the enemy overrun them. While Onabugesha were often defensive, Onamusha participated on the battlefield. 
Toma was one of the few women who participated in the offensive fighting in the Genpai War from 1180 to 85. This war was between the Taira, or Haike, clan, and the Minamoto clan, led by Lord Minamoto Kiso no Yoshinaka, who considered her one of the best, if not the best, general in Japan. Tomo's mother had been Yoshinaka's wet nurse, and from childhood she was raised as his sister. Sorry guys, some versions have her as his wife or his concubine. It changes on who's telling it. Whatever it is, I know it's technically not incest, and I'm going to rest easy in that. Um, No one find me and correct me if it is incest. Just let me have this one, please. Tomo's skill would be proven during the darkest hours of the Genpai War. Yoshinaka gained few victories and quickly lost support as the Taira were closing in on the capital of Kyoto. One version of the story says that Yoshinaka delayed leaving so long that literally servants began killing themselves outside his door to make him hurry up. When he finally did leave, it was with maybe half a dozen samurai with him, Tomo included. One version suggests that during 1185, she led 300 samurai into battle against 2,000 Taira warriors, and she was only one of five who survived. Somehow, Tomo got separated in the forest during the retreat, encountering two enemy generals. The first was Hatakeyama, who she defeated so brutally that he fled so his family's reputation wouldn't be tainted by his death at the hands of a woman. Next came Uchida, who Tomo promptly beheaded. Later that year, Tomo and Yoshinaka would face up against their latter's cousin in the Battle of Awazawa against the Musashi clan. When she was ordered to leave the battlefield, Tomo refused, saying that she wanted to honor Yoshinaka one last time by killing a single adversary. And I'd say she picked the right one because she rode straight up to the charging enemy line and decapitated their leader in front of her saddle. Okay, good, good on her. Some legends say that she commanded up to 1,000 troops and that a special kind of naginata is named after her. But I think it's safe to say that Tomo Gozen's name lives on. There is a bit of a disagreement about how her story ends. In one version, she escaped battle and became a Buddhist nun at age 28, dying at age 90. Another says she was taken prisoner and forced to be concubine to Wada Yoshimori. Or that she goes on a revenge spree and walks into the sea with the head of her lord so it wouldn't be mutilated by the enemies. I don't even know what to say. I feel like they really just couldn't have picked three more different endings. None, concubine, dramatic suicide. This feels like a very warped game of Russian roulette. Tomo Gozen's story, though, made it into a no-play in the 15th century, an incredible feat, as it is only one of 18 warrior stories out of 200 plays still in existence. She is also part of Kyoto's Jidmai Matsuri Parade, which celebrates key figures in the city's history. After Tomo Gozen, female samurai made up a large part of the warrior class. They protected their villages and opened schools to teach other young women martial arts and military strategy. Although most noble women were mothers and wives, many were still trained to defend their homes and families. Each clan in Japan had onabuyesha, and as time went on, female samurai started fighting in more battles. The Battle of Sebon, Masubaru, for example, showed out of 105 recovered bodies, 35 were female. 
some samurai women were able to transcend roles not just on the battlefield but in politics as well. Hojo Masako was the wife of the first shogunate of the Kamakura period, which lasted from 1185 to 1333. When her husband was killed, this onobugesha became a Buddhist nun, which was a pretty common practice for samurai widows. She raised and heavily influenced the careers of her two sons, though, who would themselves go on to be shoguns. Through her work, women at the shogun's court were able to gain equality in so many more ways, such as equal rights to inheritance on par with their male relatives. Women's standing in Japanese society increased, most notably in the home. Through this, they were able to manage their own homes, control finances and servants, and ensure that their children had proper samurai upbringings. Yep, gotta indoctrinate them young. The Battle of Aizu, however, is regarded as the last stand for the Onobugesha. In 1868, Nakano Takego led a group of female samurai known as the Joshitai against the emperor's western-backed Meiji government. The Joshitai were a squadron of 20 to 30 skilled warrior women still fighting in Aizu for the defeated shogun. The Nakanos led the warriors, with Koku in her 40s and her two daughters, Takeko only 22, and Yuko being 16. Takeko was the daughter of a high-ranking official in imperial court and was highly skilled in martial arts and the Naginata, making sure all of the Onobugesha of Aizu also had this training, which was beginning to fade, unfortunately, during the Meiji Restoration. Takeko led the Joshati alongside male warriors, killing enemies in close combat in their last stand at Ruibashi, the Bridge of Tears. Takeko managed to kill six enemies before she was finally felled by a bullet. 16-year-old Yuko rushed to her side and caught Takeko's dying wish for Yuko to cut off her head so that it couldn't be taken as a trophy. Poor Yuko was so exhausted that that someone else had to finish the grisly task for her. Aizu fell, and with it, one in ten of the surrendering warriors were female samurai. 660 out of 4,956 warriors. Yuko survived the battle and buried Takeko's head beneath a tree in a nearby monastery. Takeko's grave and her naginata are still there today for people to pay their respects. Nakano Takeko is regarded as the last great female samurai, and the Battle of Aizu is the last stand of the Onobugesha. Shortly after their defeat, the rebellion fell and the era of the samurai came to an end. The 17th century had seen a decline in female samurai as women's power in society was greatly diminished. Women were removed from authority, even within their own homes, seen for childbearing and wanting to be demure and obedient over the courage and power they were taught through Bushido, the tenants of the Japanese warrior. During all of Japanese history, there has been a pretty interesting sidestep for non-noble women in search of power, and it wasn't the samurai path. Instead, it was kunoichi, women who practice ninjutsu. That's right, baby, we're talking about ninjas. This term first kind of came around in the 16th century. When I looked it up, surprise, surprise, I got a very weird rabbit hole of an explanation. I could have gone my whole life without knowing. Curiosity is the devil, but it seems we've already gone down to Georgia. If you get that reference, have a great day. 
I'm so sorry, and remember I'm writing this on no sleep and a lot of dreams. The title Kukunochi might be a reference to 9 plus 10, which means a woman's additional biological hole as compared to a man's nine holes. Don't think about it too hard. It's only one interpretation. I would search for more, but I'm afraid of what I'll find. So, Most female ninjas rarely fought, though. Instead, they were masters of deception, carrying messages, eavesdropping, or committing quiet assassinations. Often, a ninja would sneak into her enemy's home disguised as a maid and listen in on the servants. Sex could also be a powerful tool to gain information via seduction. Kunoichi would use claw-like blades, the nikotai, perfect for stabbing necks, and were also dipped in poison. A favorite was also the metal-bladed folding fan for hiding weapons in plain sight. Another favorite was poisoning alcohol. We, we like poison today. When confronted, a Kunoichi might tear her dress and scream as she ran away, causing confusion and misdirection. I would say don't do this in public, but I'd be lying if I said I hadn't used my monthly hysterics and cramps as an excuse for men to leave me alone. Ninjas have been teaching us for centuries, people. Ninjas were trained to serve the ruling and samurai class and have existed for over 1,000 years. Ninja schools even still exist today, and you can just attend them? At their very height, there were believed to have been 71 ninja schools across Japan, often in remote and rural locations. Parents would train their own sons and daughters in ninjutsu, which all had different styles and training depending on the region and the school. Ninjas had excellent knowledge of plants as well, making effective remedies and compresses to treat injuries as part of a revered knowledge they passed down. And, and also for poisonings, obviously. Perhaps the most renowned of all the kunuaichi was Mochizuki Chiyome. She was a noblewoman and wife of Lord Mochizuki Nobunmasa and was rumored to have been born a ko in the Koga ninja clan. When her husband went away to battle, Chiyome went to live with his uncle, the powerful daimyo Takeda Shingen, who approached her with a proposition. Recruit women to join his own spy ring of Kuniochi. Setting up shop, so to speak, in the village of Nazu in the Shinshu region, Chiyomi began finding operatives for her very own underground network. Most women were orphans, former prostitutes, or had been disadvantaged by the war, coming to live in this secret ninja school under the guise of it being a home for displaced women. In truth, Chiyomi trained women to be messengers, seductresses, and assassins. Hukunuichi were masters of disguise. Women would pass as shrine maidens, prostitutes, and geisha in order to gather information or kill. Shomi's network was extensive and incredibly successful, with 200 to 300 kunuichi operating within, working with Shingen until his mysterious death in 1573. Ninjas themselves have also fallen out of history. Or maybe they haven't. If there's a ninja in disguise anywhere around here, I sure as hell won't be able to tell. They're too good. All right, if you can't tell, my voice is giving out, so I think it's a good time to retrace our steps. Increased artistic and social roles of women during the Heian period, followed by the establishment of the shogunate and centuries of warfare across the archipelago of Japan, 
gave birth to a perfect storm of blood and brawn that gave us female samurais and ninjas, politicians, nuns, queens, and spymasters. Truly, if I threw anything else at you in this episode, I think it would burst. Much of what we know about samurai culture comes from interpretations from the West, West's influence on Japan, throughout the 19th and 20th century, which had no use for respectable warrior women when the image of a gentle, a gentlewoman in a tight-clad kimono and obi belt is so much more alluring. It's not. Give us swords. Or better yet, give us both. If we learned anything today, I hope it's that the deeper we dive into a place or time period, no matter how niche or expansive the topic, there's a good chance women were there, changing the world whether history wrote down their names or not. If anything, I just hope you're curious. I can't thank you enough for joining me today. I will see you next week for another woman who made her story. Thank you.